So we're looking at this theme this morning on grace, a license to sin or an empowerment to live. When we think about the word grace, we have different, different understandings. The secular world uses grace. The non-Christian world also uses the word grace. Is there any difference between the way they use it and we as Christians would use it? So, when you're looking at grace, some people will think it is a license to sin because after all, God's grace is available to us. No matter whatever we do, God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. So as a result, we can do what we want to, but God's grace will still be available for us. There are others who would also say, no, that is not really the truth. Because the scripture teaches us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 it says, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. So if you and I are under grace, then sin should not be the master. If sin is still the master, if still, sin is still reigning in our lives, if we think it's a license to sin, we can do what we want to, but still expect God's grace upon us, God's favor upon us, then something is drastically wrong. So I hope this morning as we look at this study on grace, we would understand what grace is all about, and that we will be responsive to the empowerment that is available in God's grace for each one of us, so that we would not live careless lives, but we would live lives that are full of victory. In the original Greek, these verses from verse 11 to 14 is actually just one single long sentence. Okay? Four verses, but just one sentence, and it packs in a lot of important spiritual theological truth. And somebody has said this is one of the most uh, greatest theological statements in the Bible. And this morning as we look at this study on grace, let's not think, hey, it's going to be a very heavy study. Because as soon as we talk about theology, then we think it shall all go above our heads. But I'll try and make it as practical as possible because when Paul is writing this particular letter, the Titus, it's a lot of practical teaching. And he starts off this verse, verse 11, where he says, For, for the grace of God has appeared to all men. Because before that he is giving a lot of instructions. Old men, young men, old women, young women, how they should behave, what should be their practices, what should be their lifestyle, how they should really live. And then he is introducing the reason why practical life must be correct according to scripture. There must be doctrine in our lives, there must be practice in our lives. If we are high on doctrine, but there is no practice in our lives, we have not really understood what that doctrine is all about. So if we have understood grace, then it will not lead us to a license to sin and live a complacent life. But once we have understood grace, then we will be able to live lives that are victorious. Now, when you are thinking about the non-believer using the word grace, do they also use the word grace? Yes. It is 
God's grace that has taken me through. We also use that phrase. But when you're thinking about God's grace in that sense, we would put it as a common grace. A grace which speaks about the providence of God. A grace that speaks about God sending down the rain, sending down the sunshine. That's God's grace upon us. Giving us light. That is God's grace upon us. But when the Bible is speaking about grace in this particular passage, it is speaking about a saving grace. A grace that has appeared because of what Jesus has done for us. Because if you notice, that's how this verse tells us, isn't it? For the grace of God has appeared to all men. And when you're speaking about God's grace, John writing about the advent of Jesus here on earth, he speaks about Jesus full of grace and truth. If you want to know who grace is, <coughs> we look at the embodiment, we look at the manifestation of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we must know what grace is. Grace is God's person. Grace is Jesus. So when you speak about the grace of God has appeared to all men, the Bible is not speaking that salvation has come to all men. The Bible is not saying that everybody has grace, so everybody is now a believer. No, the scripture is speaking about Jesus who has appeared to all men, so that you and I who put our trust in God, in this grace that has been available, in this saving grace that has been available, now we are able to become believers. Now, we must also be careful that a little poison, what does it do? It wrecks, it kills. So when we are understanding about grace, remember, a little wrong understanding can lead you astray, can give you this thought that I can do what I want to, but still, God's grace is still upon me. If you notice, the scripture tells us, the first time that the word of grace appears in scripture is when the Bible tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Then immediately speaks about Noah was a righteous man. Now when he's speaking about a person who is responding to what God has done, then the scripture tells us he finds grace. The Bible tells us that God gives grace to those who are humble. In other words, there is a, you know, a possibility. It's not a, a blanket grace that is available to everybody. That's the common grace that people speak about. But when you're speaking about the biblical understanding of grace, a grace that empowers, it's a grace that comes from Jesus, who is the one who has saved us. And unless we have understood that thought very clearly, then and then only our lives will change. Now, this morning, ask yourself this question. What you believe in is going to be seen in what you practice. If you are practicing a casual lifestyle, if you are practicing a lifestyle that says, I can do whatever I want to, but after all, God is graceful, God is merciful to me, then something is wrong in your creed, in your belief, in your understanding of God's grace. <coughs> Chuck Swindoll says that grace is summed up in the name, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, when he is speaking about, when Paul is writing to Titus and says, 
for the grace of God has appeared to all men. What is the next part of it? It is teaching. Teaching what? That we should deny ungodliness. If saving grace has come to us, then this is what it will lead to. It will lead to a denial of ungodliness and worldly desires in our lives. If there is no denial of ungodliness, if there is no denial of worldly desires, if our life is still the same before we say we have become a believer and afterwards, there's a question mark whether the saving grace has actually come into our lives. Now the English word grace is from the Latin word gratia, which means favor, charm or thanks. It means favor. And that is how we get this understanding into our minds that grace is God's unmerited favor to us. Now that's the traditional understanding that we have always accepted. Grace is something that God gives to us, that which we don't deserve. We, can, we don't deserve God's grace, <coughs> we deserve God's punishment, but God gives grace to us. And we have extended that understanding of favor to an unmerited favor. We have extended it even further and says we are living sinful lives. We don't deserve any grace, but God still gives His grace to us. That's not biblical. We take that verse which says even though we are faithless, even though we are unfaithful, God is still faithful to me. That is unbiblical. The Bible doesn't say that you can continue to live in sin and still expect the faithfulness of God. The Bible doesn't say that you can do whatever you want to do, live an ungodly life and still expect God's grace and favor to be upon us. We must be careful about how we have understood grace. This is why God's grace <coughs> gets polluted as it were between these two extremes. <coughs> the next slide. On one grave, charis is sinner, the Greek word, we'll come to that a little later, but we just understood this first part from the Latin word gratia, which means a favor, something that we give thanks for, something that has been received by us. Now God's pure grace gets polluted from two sides. On one side, that's the next slide please, grace runs counter to the way the world works. It is difficult for us to grasp this. Why? Because the world runs on a merit system. The world runs on a merit system. If you do well in school, if you do well in college, if you get a good merit, then you get good grades then you get a good job. If you have done well in your job, if you have done meritoriously, then you are the beneficiary. Now the world works on a merit system. And this same understanding comes even into the religious world. If you ask a person, how will you be saved? How can, what is the thing that you need to do for your salvation? His immediate response will be what? I need you to do some good works. If I show a couple of merit, if my good deeds are going to outweigh the bad, then I know I will be saved. And this can happen not just in the non-Christian world, when the whole emphasis of salvation is by works, 
But sometimes even in the Christian world, we can get into this understanding of merit. I have done good. I am a good Christian. As a result, I should expect favor from God. <clears throat> but on the other hand, the other extreme of grace, the other wrong understanding of grace is to mistake God's grace for licentiousness or basically to say that you can do whatever you want to, God's grace is still available. This is what happened in the New Testament church in Jude verse 4. In Jude verse 4. It says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Jude writing about the last day says, People have slipped in and they're denying the grace of God are changing it over and saying you can do whatever you want to. After all, God is a very gracious God. And I believe the church today can definitely be in that period. Where there's no purity in the church, where there's no holiness in the church, where there are no standards of right and wrong maintained in the church, and we still say God's grace is upon us. A license for licentious living. Now these two, if you were to say, are the extremes. And we must make sure that this particular, con uh, this particular text, when it explains what grace is all about, it's trying to correct these two extreme misconceptions of grace. Charles Spurgeon has mentioned it like this. He says, there are many who are barely Christians and have scarcely enough grace to float them into heaven. The keel of their vessel grating on the gravel all the way. He says, they have hardly any grace. They somehow thinking that they will just survive somehow. I made a commitment. God has been gracious to me. I'm not really sailing high. I'm somehow just grating along. But I'm saying, glory, hallelujah. God's grace is upon me. No. God's grace is so that he has empowered us to deny ungodliness, deny worldly living, and to say yes to God. <clears throat> so let's look at this morning, this particular passage in all its depths to understand what God's grace is all about. And Paul, if you have to put it in two formats, he's saying God's grace first of all saves us. That is the saving grace of God. But it doesn't end there. It also trains us to live holy lives. It trains us for godliness and good deeds. If you have taken only half of that to say it has saved us, but we are not recognizing that God's grace is available to us each day to empower us to live godly life, to live a life full of good deeds, then we have taken only half the story or half the understanding about grace. So first of all, God's grace brings salvation to all people. God's grace brings salvation to all people. God's grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and as a result, salvation has come to all people. The possibility to be saved has come to all people. 
the option to respond to God to be saved has been available. The avenue to receive God's forgiveness has been available because of what God has done for us. We could not reach up to God on our own, but praise be to God that God has sent His Son full of grace and truth. He has appeared to mankind, died on the cross, rose again, so that His saving grace is now available to you and I. But when you're thinking about God's grace that has been available, we must understand that you don't need salvation unless you are lost and you know you are lost. Salvation doesn't come to just everybody. Grace has been available, but unless a person recognizes that he or she is lost, that he needs a savior, then only what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the grace that has been available, the scripture says, you and I can find grace in him. This morning, when you look into your life, do you recognize that you are lost? Do you recognize that you need a savior? Think for example, if in this particular in a, uh, illustration, if you were standing in a queue in a bank, I'm sure you have been used to standing in queues by now. If you're used to standing in a queue in a bank, suddenly one guy comes and pulls you by the arm, nearly tears your shirt off and takes you outside. If that happens, what would you say? You'll be angry with that guy because you are standing in the queue, you want to withdraw money and suddenly one guy is taking you off. You may get angry with him. But if you looked at the scenario a little differently and then when he is out, he tells you, look at the reason why I did this is because some terrorists had taken over the bank and they were going to shoot everybody. I pulled you out of that danger. Now unless you are lost, then only, you would, unless you have recognized that you are lost, then only you would be grateful for the release that has been given to you. Unless we have recognized that we are dead in sin, we could not in any way help ourselves, then only we understand what saving grace is all about. A lot of people think they are pretty good people anyway. Jesus' death on the cross is for that criminal, is for that person, but me, I am a pretty good guy. Yes, I have accepted Jesus, but they have not really understood the depth of that grace because they never really understood how badly they needed the Lord. It is like, again, Charles Spurgeon gives this example. It's like, you know, a rope that is around your neck. You are going to be hanged, but God's grace comes in and cuts that rope and sets you free. If you have understood your slavery to sin, if you have understood how deep-rooted you are in sin, even though you may say I was a good person, God says all our righteousnesses are still there. You could not in any way inch your way into God's kingdom, but God reached down and pulled you out from the very pits of hell. That is understanding what God's grace is all about. So if we have to understand the saving grace, we must understand have we really recognized the gravity of sin, the wages of sin is death, and God's grace has pulled us out. If we have understood that, then we don't play with sin anymore. But if we think that we have done God a favor by responding to Jesus, a lot of people think like that, isn't it? 
especially when Passion Week comes in, he said, poor Jesus, he paid the price, poor Jesus, he had, you know, he went through so much suffering on the cross, I will do him a favor, I will say yes to him. It is not you and I doing a favor to God. It is God who has shown favor to us. Once we have understood the gravity of sin, then and then only, we can understand what grace is all about. <clears throat> now the word charis in the Greek. The pagan Greeks used this word to refer to a favor done by one Greek to another out of a pure generosity of his heart. The word charis is a Greek word. The Greeks used this. This was a word that was used for one individual to show generosity to another person. But this was only of a friend. But the biblical understanding of uh, favor is not done for a friend, but to an enemy. God's grace, the Greek word charis, refers to an action that was beyond the ordinary course of what might be expected, and therefore was commendable. Greeks use it for a favor. Here's a friend, he needs this favor, generosity, you have given it. But sometimes we think of God's grace also like that. No, God's grace is even though when we were still in sin, the Bible tells us Christ died for us. That is God's grace. That is the saving grace. That is charis. And that is what the scripture tells us we must understand. This morning, in the first part, have you understood God's grace upon your life? Have you understood that you were supposed to burn forever in the flames of hell, but God has pulled you out? Have you understood that you were sinking deep in sin, but God lifted you up and put you on a strong rock? Have you understood God's grace upon your life? And this morning, would you stop and give thanks to God for this saving grace? God, you have saved me. I should have been on the cross, but you took my place. That is God's grace upon us. Now secondly, it doesn't stop there. It says, for the grace of God has appeared to all men. No full stop there. It is one sentence. Why has the grace of God appeared? Yes, salvation has come in. But in order to teach us, in order to train us. That is what the scripture tells us over there, isn't it? In order to train us teaching that we should deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The word is that is used there for training, instruction. It's a word that is used for child rearing. It's a Greek word that speaks, you know, that means, you know, the Greek word is pedio, from which we get pediatrics. It's a child training word. And when you're thinking about this child training, when you teach a child, you're not only teaching them ABCs, isn't it? Teaching is not just that teaching of instruction, but teaching also involves a correction. Teaching also involves a discipline. So that is what is meant from that word instructing. It is not just the teaching of a classroom setting. The word that is used that teaching them to deny ungodliness is there's a correction that is given. It's a discipline that takes place. It is information that is also given. Teaching what? 
is the question. And for what purpose is the question? So that the end result is we will become pure and holy. When God's grace comes and dwells in us, the scripture tells us that there will be a definite change over. The Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, speaking to the nation of Israel which were rebellious people, hard-hearted people, people who had begun to worship other idols, the scripture tells us, I will put my spirit inside of you. And then I will put a desire in your hearts to follow and to worship and to obey. That is what salvation is all about. When Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a person is born from above, unless God does his internal work, unless God puts his spirit inside of you and changes you inside out, then and then only we have a desire to deny ungodliness. Then and then only we have a desire to do the things that pleases God. If there's no desire, there's a big question mark whether we have responded to the saving grace. You may be mistaking grace for just a common grace to say God is gracious to me. But you have never really responded to God's grace. <coughs> So he mentions over here three ways that grace trains us. First of all, trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Trains us, teaches us, instructs us, corrects us, so that we will deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This is not something new. Jesus also said this in Luke's Gospel chapter 9 and verse 23, a famous verse, where he says, if any man come follow after me, then he must deny himself, take up the cross daily and come follow after me. Now, when you're thinking about denying ungodliness, this is not necessarily living or denying the ungodly things. Sometimes you may say, before I became a Christian, I used to do this, 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 okay, all the bad things. Now I become a Christian, I don't do any of that. Are pretty good. What do you do now? That's the basic difference. So when you're speaking about ungodliness, it is not just some things, bad things that you used to do, but it is equally a person who ignores God. Okay? A person who ignores God. Somebody has put this very clearly. I said this refers to a person who does not reverence God and thus lives by ignoring God. How does he ignore God? His everyday life is organized, motivated and run by self with no place for God. His everyday life is run very methodically. He has planned it all out. God is nowhere in the sea. That is living an ungodly life. In fact, Arthur Pink mentions in a particular statement, which is, I will come to that when I see that. Okay? He mentions about even the attitude of murmuring okay, about the weather is an attitude of ungodliness. Because we are saying we don't really believe in God, that God is in really control over the weather. Okay? If it's suddenly getting hot, you know, we are blaming God. God is getting too hot. Is God in charge of the weather? He's in charge of the weather. 
If he's allowed some heat to come in, praise God for that. Put God into that picture. But living an ungodly life basically speaks about ignoring God with no place of God. And when you're thinking about the worldly lust, John writing in his epistle, he speaks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. An individual who is saved says no to all these things. That is what denying ungodliness and worldly desires is all about. God's grace enables you and I to say no. Somebody has said that the most difficult part of the training of young people is not to put the right thing into them, but to get the wrong thing out of them. A lot of education is basically that, isn't it? To unlearn something. I wonder, those of you who are into music and you know, teaching songs, you know, you'll find it very difficult if somebody has learned a song the wrong way. To teach them the right way becomes very difficult. Because the more you keep telling them, that somehow still keeps surfacing up. Okay? Now, correction is important. But how does correction come in? There has to be a denial of that which is wrong. This is why C.S. Lewis was correct when he said, Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. What does it mean a religious bad man says? I'm pretty good. Okay? He doesn't understand how bad he is, but he claims himself to be a religious person. He claims to be a person who is under the grace of God, but there's still ungodliness. There's still worldly desires in him. That will not really do. Okay? <coughs> Ungodliness is failing to give God his due place in our hearts and lives. Listen to this statement of Arthur Pink where he says, We are guilty of ungodliness when we are prayerless. We are guilty of ungodliness when we look and lean upon the creature or when we fail to see God's hand in providence, ascribing our blessings to luck or chance. And we are guilty of ungodliness when we grumble at the weather. That is what ungodliness is all about. When we are prayerless, when a problem comes into our lives, who do we immediately contact? Do we send a message to somebody? Do we call up somebody? Or is that immediate response to call out to God? Or when God is blessing us, do we say, it just happened. It's just luck. Now my luck was good this morning. But by chance everything worked out. It is God who did that. It's God's grace upon us. If we don't give credit to God, but give credit to luck or chance, then the chances are that we are living ungodly lives. And I like this definition of uh, grace by a person called James Wright, who was one of the founders of the Promise Keepers movement. James Wright defines grace like this. He says, grace is the empowering presence of God enabling me to be what God created me to be and to do what God has called me to do. See this definition. We just say grace is unmerited favor. God has shown his favor upon us. We can do whatever we want to. God is still graceful. No. Grace is the empowering presence of God enabling me. He empowers me 
to do what God has created me for. What has it recreated me for? That we would become like Him. That is His purpose. His purpose for coming into our lives is not just so that He could save us and send us to heaven, but He has saved us so that our lives would become like Him. And God's grace is that empowerment which God gives to us so that we can say no to ungodliness. We can say no to worldly desires and say yes to sensible living and righteousness and live a life that pleases God. That is what God's grace is all about. Warren Gersby says it is not enough for us to have the Spirit. The Spirit must have us. It is not enough for us to have the Spirit. We will say, I have the Spirit of God living in me. It is not enough. That is not sufficient. It is one thing to say, God has saved me. That is not enough. It is the Spirit of God must have me. He must be the one who is controlling me. He must be the one who is empowering me to say no to what is wrong and saying yes to what is right. If in case you are struggling this morning, to say, saying no to worldly desires. If in case you are struggling this morning, to saying no to ungodliness. You are still running your own life. This morning, friends, lay hold of the grace of God, the empowerment of God. If we say, I'm feeling it very weak, I cannot say no. You know, it is very difficult for me to say no. It is always so empowering to me, it takes over me. No, God's grace has been upon you. Saving grace empowers you to say no. Lay hold of that grace and live a life for Him. Secondly, not only does it enable you, empowers you to say no, it also trains you to say yes. It trains you to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. Three things it says over that. It enables you, it empowers you to say yes, to live sensibly, to live righteously and godly in this present age. Many commentators have pointed out that sensibly refers to controlling yourself, self-control. If you're having issues with self-control, the scripture says grace is available. Grace is available. Lay hold of that grace so that control over yourself will come in. Righteously has reference to relationship with others. In case you have trouble in, in our relationships, conflicts, God's grace is available. Lay hold of that. Ask God for His grace. And the scripture says He gives grace to those who are humble. If we are willing to be humble before God, God's grace is made available so that in our relationships with others, it would be pleasing. And godly will refer to our relationship towards God. Our relationship towards God. Charles Spurgeon again explains, he said, The man who is disciplined by the grace of God becomes thoughtful, considerate, self-curtailed, and is no longer tossed about by passion or swayed by prejudice. That's self-control. A person who is controlled by the Spirit of God is no longer swayed by passion, is no longer swayed by whatever the world is saying, whatever the others are saying. He has self-control. And self-control, remember, is the 
fruit of the Spirit of God. This comes through the grace of God. If you're having issues again this morning, controlling different areas of your life, whether it is your eating, sleeping, drinking, you know, or whatever issues you may have, if you're having issues with that, God's grace, if you have been saved by God, God's grace is that He empowers you to have self-control. Secondly, God's grace trains us to live righteously. This refers to a life of integrity and uprightness in your dealings with others. A life of integrity. What you say, what you believe in, what is inside, what is outside. Relationship with others, no playing games, no saying one thing and doing the other. God's grace enables you to live righteously. We are living in an age and time where integrity is not really there in leadership. We are living in an age and time where people are looking for individuals whom they can look up to. Here's a person of integrity. God's grace is available. And as God's grace empowers us to live lives of integrity, it shows to the world that we are different. If our lives are also full of no integrity, if our relationship with others are all broken and conflicts, the world will say, what difference is that? He says he's a Christian, change not, not there at all. But God's grace is available so that we will live sensibly, we will have self-control, we will also live righteously in right relationship with one, with one another. God's grace comes upon us. Thirdly, God's grace trains us to live godly. To live godly. This refers to holiness. This refers to an internal heart attitude. This refers you know, to God examining our hearts and saying, Here's a person after my own heart. If God's Spirit is living in our hearts, should our hearts be like His heart? Yes, isn't it? If God's Spirit is living in us. If His grace is there in us, then we should be thinking and heart beating the same way that God's heart is beating. If it is not there, maybe we are not availing of that grace. This morning, would you lay hold of that grace of God and say, Lord, I want to be an individual whom you can say, here's a person after my own heart. So this morning ask yourself, are you simply existing or are you really living? You say, yes, I've responded to the grace. But are you really living that empowerment with God's grace manifested in your daily walk? See this poetry called Barnyard Ducks. Okay? Ask yourself, does the following anonymous poem describe how you feel? My soul is like a barnyard duck, muddling in the barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings. But sometimes when the north wind sings and wild ducks fly overhead, it ponders something lost and dead, then cocks a weary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. It's quite content with the state it's in, but it's not the duck it might have been. What is a barnyard duck? Barnyard duck is just in the barn. Okay? It doesn't move anywhere else. Okay? 
looks at other ducks lying, moving around, you know, looks around for some time, hey, I wish I could do that, but back to normal, back to living in the barn. A lot of church members were like that, isn't it? You could call them, you know, church Christians, maybe, instead we don't want to call them ducks, you know. People are just within the confine of the four walls of the church. God is expecting you to rise up with wings like eagles, soar above, to show to the world what God's grace is all about. But we're still wallowing in the mud. We're still wallowing in the mud. We're still doing the same things that we used to do before. But we're still saying what? God's grace is upon me. The world looks at us and says, what grace is that? We're looking for an empowerment of grace. And God is asking us to be individuals who are willing to come out of the barnyard. If you are living in the barnyard this morning, would you take that step and say, Lord, I take hold of your grace to soar up with wings like eagles. But this will happen only if you really want to fly. You can be saved only when you realize you are lost. You can also soar up with wings like an eagle only when you really want to fly. If you are dissatisfied with your life, then God's grace comes along and says, Here, take this. It will empower you. But if on the other hand you say, I'm happy being a barnyard I'm happy being a chicken. I'm happy just coming to church and going back again. Good work, good message, good manner, church service that we have. That's all there is. But there's no life change. There's no empowerment. Something is desperately wrong. Thirdly, grace trains us to live in godliness by looking ahead and looking backwards. Looking ahead and looking behind. Not only does grace enable us to say no, not only does grace enable us to say yes, but God, God's grace also trains us to look forward and to look backwards. The forward look is to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The backward look is towards the cross and the implications in our lives. The scripture teaches us over here, looking ahead to the blessed hope of Christ's second coming. Looking ahead of that blessed hope. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John writing says, He who has this hope of his coming purifies himself even as he is pure. If we have that hope of his coming back again, God's grace trains us to live holy lives today. Why? Because we are anticipating His coming. How expectant are you for Christ coming back again? Would you be like some people in the New Testament time saying, Oh, you have been speaking about Christ coming back, coming back. 2000 years has come and gone. So many generations, my parents, my grandparents told about it. Nothing has happened. Or you may see on YouTube videos, I see about so many images. Christ was supposed to come back this day, come back this day, come back this day. But nothing has happened. I wonder if in my lifetime, or is this really true that Christ is going to come back? The scripture tells us, if you train yourself, to look forward to that day, then your life and mine becomes pure. Are you looking forward for His coming? If your focus is set on the hope of Christ's return, then 
your life will be different. Looking forward implies an eager anticipation, isn't it? When one of our loved ones has gone out maybe to another country for a long period of time and they are coming back, there's an eager anticipation from the people who are here and from your side, an eager anticipation to be united together. Do you have that eager anticipation for his coming? Or do you think that's just a doctrine, or maybe not even a doctrine, maybe just a myth? How eager are you anticipating his coming? If you are eager, what will you do? If you are waiting for somebody to arrive from a particular destination, what will you check up? You check their arrival time. You check where they are coming, how they are coming. And you would also make sure that your house is ready, isn't it? You don't want them to come in and find your houses in a mess. If you're looking forward for Christ coming back again, you're studying His coming, you're studying His events, you're anticipating. The more you read and study, the more the anticipation grows inside of you. Not just as a theory to understand events about the second coming, but you say, if He's going to come back soon, then my life has to be in order. If it can happen even today, then my life has to be ready. So there is a purity that is built up in us. Adhanaram Judson, a missionary who went to Burma, he puts it across this way. He says, a life once spent is irrevocable. It will remain to be contemplated throughout eternity. A life once spent is going to be irrevocable. It is done. You can't do anything else about it. It is put into eternity. He says, the same may be said of each day. When it is once passed, it is gone forever. All the marks which we put upon it, it will exhibit forever. Each day will not only be a witness of our conduct, but will affect our everlasting destiny. How shall we then wish to see each day marked with usefulness. It is too late to mend the days that are past. The future is in our power. Let us then each morning resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb as we shall wish it to wear forever. How beautifully it puts it across. Each day God has given to us permanent whatever we have done today. No changes can be made. But as God gives us that opportunity, will we make the best use of it? Expectant looking then is the antidote for an apathetic living. Expectant living, looking forward is the best antidote if there is apathy in your life. Fanny Crosby, who was physically blind but had the spiritual eyes of faith, speaks about this if an expectant living in the beautiful hymn, Blessed Assurance, where she writes, Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking about, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. Was blind, did not see anything, but eyes of expectancy, watching and waiting, looking about, filled with His goodness, lost in his love. Looking forward. Then finally Paul speaks and says, looking backward. 
looking backward at what? He looks back to what Christ has redeemed us from. In verse uh, 14, it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He says, why do I look forward? Because when I look back, I recognize the one who gave himself for me. The scripture spoke about in the beginning, about the grace of God that appeared to us. Now it is speaking about the second coming, where it's going to be the manifestation of his glory. And he says, I'm looking forward for that day, because looking back, I recognize what Christ did for me. The word redemption can best be illustrated by a missionary in West Africa who was trying to convey its meaning of the word redeem in the Bambara language. So he asked his African assistant to express it in his native tongue. And this is what the the assistant said. He said, we say in our language that God took our heads out. So that's how we explain redemption. We say that God took our heads out. Now, that was pretty new. So the perplexed missionary asked him, how does that explain redemption? So the man told him that many years ago, some of his ancestors had been captured by slave traders, chained together and driven to the sea coast. Each of the prisoners had a heavy iron collar around his neck. And as the slaves passed through a village, a chief might notice a friend of his among the captives and offer to pay the slave traders in gold, ivory, silver or brass. The prisoner would be redeemed by the payment. What will happen then? His head would then be taken out of the iron collar. That is what it meant of taking the head out. What an unusual and a graphic illustration of the word redeem. Let God take your head out of the enslaving collar of sin and set you free. That's what redemption is. That's what God has done for us. He has taken away our slavery to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin because we are not under the law, but we are under God's grace. Paul also says over there, excitement, he says, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager, eager to do that which is good. He says, this is the lifestyle of a person who has known what God's grace is all about. One who is eager, whose hearts cry constantly to do good works. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, pictures zealousness for good deeds in her famous poem. She writes, give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sing to be a clod, make me thy fuel flame of God. That's the heart cry of a person who has understood what God's grace is all about. And the Christian martyr Jim Elliot expresses a similar thought where he asks this question. Am I ignitable? Remember the next slide speaks about these four missionaries who were missionaries, you know, five guys who were you know, sent to the Yuka Indians 
individuals who were headhunters, who were all killed. But Jim Elliot, the one who's right in the middle, he has written his memoirs and, and his, uh, his journal, rather. And uh, you have a lot of, lot of quotes in that. And in one of them he says, Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be afraid. You really want to be set on fire for God this morning? How will you say, I'm happy doing what I'm doing? After all, God's grace is upon me. God's grace empowers you to be that individual who will be put on fire for God. Examine yourself this morning, friends, then. Are you eager to do good? Are you looking forward for the return of Christ? Are you saying no to ungodliness and worldly desires? And are you saying yes to self-control and righteousness? Let me close with this statement that is there in your notes. John Piper asked this question that we should all consider <coughs> seriously. He writes in his book, Future Grace, If you dropped dead right now, would you take with you a payload of pleasure in God or would you stand before him with a spiritual cavity that covetousness used to be? If you were to drop dead this morning, what would you take with you? Would you take a payload of pleasure in God? God, this entire life that you gave me, my heart is filled with pleasure for what you have done and I lived a life that brought pleasure to you and you alone. Or would you take a spiritual cavity? All your life you are filled with only covetousness, living for yourself. But the time came, you could do nothing. You left everything behind here. As the well-known song also says, Must I go and empty-handed? God's grace has been made available. And God has given us His grace to purify for Himself a people whose heart is saying, I am eager to do good deeds. May the Lord help us to be individuals such as these. When the Lord comes back again, He will find us ready and waiting.